this week on the Backtable Podcast. So, you know, uh, there's power in numbers, you know, when we all kind of stick together and work together to some degree, we can accomplish amazing things. Look, doctors have so much more power than we realize. Uh, I am, even though I'm a policy wonk, it had been a long time, I've never been a doom and gloomer. Yeah, there's a lot of crappy stuff going on out there that, that we uh, really have limited ability to change. However, with change comes opportunity, and there is a lot of reason to be excited about medicine, practice of medicine, the independent practice of medicine. If you're getting the right information, there's tons of opportunities out there. And doctors, when we stick together, for God's sakes, we can get so much done. But unfortunately, it's hard to find three of us who'll agree to anything. And you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Back Table Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com, and pretty much any podcast platform out there. This is Aaron Fritz as your host this week. I'm really excited to introduce our guest today, to welcome back, rather. Dr. Chris Pittman. Welcome, Chris. Aaron, thrilled to be here. Really appreciate the invite. For those of you who maybe missed episode 111, um, we had Chris on to talk about underutilization of foam scleric therapy. And we did, at that time, talk a little bit about value-based medicine, which kind of parlayed into the episode that we're jumping into today to give a basically a 101 on uh, what an MSO is, a management service organization. And uh, Chris is an expert, I'd say, in uh, in this field. And so I wanted him to to basically fill us in, define it, tell us, you know, the pros and cons of why a physician would, would join uh, or contract with an MSO. And so before we get started with that, I'll, I'll, I'll let you, Chris, give a, a brief intro by yourself. What I know about Chris, he's a physician entrepreneur an educator, a longtime educator, and he's also founder of uh, Vein Vein 911, Vein Treatment Centers. He's also a moderator of a worldwide blog called Foam Sclerotherapy Experts on LinkedIn. If you guys uh, are performing foam sclerotherapy or interested in it, I, I highly recommend joining that forum. Uh, it's got over 600 physician members and uh, a lot of great information on there. So Chris has a, a deep background in medical policy, medical economics, and politics, and he's going to give us the 101 on MSOs and how they can be helpful. Chris, I'll let you elaborate on that a bit. All right, Aaron. Well, what is a management services organization? Well, first of all, don't confuse a management services organization with a managed care organization. You know, a managed care organization is uh, a payer-based organization, you know, where they manage care and uh, contract with uh, physicians and subscribers and that kind of thing. A management services organization, at least when it pertains to healthcare, provides practice management, administrative service, support services to individual physicians, group practices, hospitals. In this case, we're talking about physician practices. All the administrative and management horsepower necessary to be successful in the ever-changing healthcare marketplace. That's what an MSO is. Okay, excellent. Aaron, I've been advocating for physicians for 30 years since I was an intern. Uh, I have a deep background in that. I'm a policy wonk. I love this stuff. Uh, And I specifically love protecting and defending the profession of medicine. It's a profession. 
It's not a business. I'm a corny doctor. I'm also a 24-year cancer survivor. I've been on both sides as a physician and a patient. Medicine is a profession worth uh, preserving, and I've had a lot of excellent mentors uh, over many decades uh, with regard to that. And that's really where my passion and energy comes from, uh, especially when it comes to the independent practice of medicine. I am chair of advocacy at the American Vein and Lymphatic Society on the board of that organization. Anything I'm saying here today, uh, obviously, are my own uh, views and not that of the society. And I'm also the managing uh, director of, a, of the largest independent network of vein practices in the country called Health Performance Specialists. So uh, I wanted to get that out of the way. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, and thank you again for the, the definition of the uh, MSO. Before we jump into kind of like what MSOs can specifically do for physicians, especially independent physicians out there, can you give us the thousand foot view of where they fit into the U.S. healthcare system um, and maybe a little bit of history behind them? You know, how long have they been around for? Are we seeing a trend in an increase in MSOs? Well, there's definitely an increase in the, uh, in the number of MSOs. Absolutely. You know, physicians typically want to stay independent, practice on their own terms. But regardless of practice setting, they're typically not happy with bureaucracy, regulation, compliance issues, navigating payer contracts, billing collections, all of that kind of stuff. Right. And MSOs uh, are around to help uh, physicians uh, manage their practices and literally do anything. An MSO can provide any service uh, outside the direct uh, delivery of healthcare. So everything's on the table when it comes to a managed services organization. Okay. And can you give us an example, some examples of, are there any well-known MSOs out there or, you know, who owns these MSOs? How do they come about? Well, uh, most of them are owned by, by business people or venture capital firms, Wall Street firms, uh, you know, those kind of outfits. One I'm extremely familiar with that's, that's fairly large is Unified Women's Healthcare. It started down in South Florida about uh, 11, 12 years ago. A good friend of mine uh, is very involved in that organization. It's a single specialty OBGYN MSO uh, that is in multiple states and has over 1,700 OBGYNs on a single EMR platform. Now, that's, that's a big operation. Yeah, so sure. any, any physician... Uh, in virtually any marketplace is going to be familiar with single specialty, large single specialty groups. We all know about multi-specialty groups, but there's large single specialty groups that can become the 1800 pound, you know, gorillas in their marketplace and preserve uh, payment and, and negotiate head to head with payers and hospital systems and that kind of thing. Uh, those are typically MSOs, a practice, you know, one of the models, and I think Unified Women's Healthcare is one of them, is uh, you basically give up your tax ID, you, you join the tax ID of the MSO, you eat what you kill, and your expenses are, are paid back to the MSO. They typically, like I said, share the tax ID so they can negotiate as a very large group. They share a retirement plan. They share, uh, you know, volume-based uh, discounts for medical malpractice and things like that. But there, for most of these operations, there is uh, some autonomy where, again, they eat what they kill. 
uh, but they, they pay a set cost back to the MSO to help them run the day-to-day operations of a practice, which, uh, as we all know, go way beyond just rendering care. Right. Let's use that to springboard into the next question in terms of what are the advantages for, you know, an independent physician out there or a independent group to joining an MSO? Um, I imagine, you know, because of their size, they, you know, they can offer these services at a cheaper price than, you know, just going out and hiring your own people. In general, that is absolutely the fact. So physicians who remain independent are are more commonly banding together under an MSO, which is a legal entity that allows physician practices to do all sorts of things. You can share resources, limit risk, offload non-medical functions, concentrate on clinical care, control your costs, remain independent, maintain control over your practice and gain the necessary efficiencies to compete in a consolidating medical marketplace. So there's a lot of advantages uh, to it. It's basically outsourcing. We all understand that concept. And that's really what an MSO is. However, like uh, anytime you go into business with a vendor, you know, you need some oversight and some knowledge of what's, what's going on. You know, you want to be able to have a a clear view and accountability with any vendor that you're contracting with, or certainly any, any MSO you entertain going into business with. Yeah. So I want to, I want to get into a few examples, you know, one that, uh, is coding and billing, for example. I mean, that's something that, you know, a lot of docs have zero training in (laughs) and it's very hard to navigate, uh, insurance is, is a lot of smoke and mirrors when dealing with insurance companies. You know, can you give us some examples on how an MSO can really help you with coding and billing? Well, you you mentioned uh, two things. One is contracting with a payer for certain rates, and certainly an MSO can help with guidance with regard to that. But then there's the other function of coding and billing. And uh, I have a lot of sayings, but one of them is, you, you know, there's contracting on the front end, billing on the back end, and you hope there's some good medicine in the middle, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Um, specifically talking with regard to billing and, and uh, coding and posting, uh, look, um, revenue cycle management firms, it's a license to print money and buyer beware. I used to help manage uh, a multi-million dollar large radiology group practice and know a fair amount about about billing. And very, very simply, uh, a billing company makes their money the moment they sign the contract. Okay. And I'm going to give kind of a rough example. 90% of claims are clean. You know, they're going to go through electronically. There's going to be little to no work rendered on the part of the billing company. And so perhaps 80 to 90%, again, just an example of your revenue is just going to be mailbox money. The billing company is not going to do for very much. But that last 20 to 15 to 10% is where they have to go to work for you, okay? And they have to adjudicate the claims, you know, chase collections and all that. That's where the real work is. And if you don't have a good view into that, uh, they may not do the best job for you because no one's right. going to watch your money like you are, right? And uh, look, in a good service business, because basically a practice is like a restaurant. You know, we're really at the end of the day, kind of like a restaurant. If you think about it, a lot of similarities, 
But uh, the a good profit margin in a practice might be 10, 15, maybe 20% if you're really well run. And so if you're if your biller or revenue uh, cycle management, as they like to refer to it, a buzz term, uh, isn't doing a really good job for you, it's going to make them incremental money to collect that last 10%, okay? Mm-hmm. Whether they work real hard or not, they've already made 80 to 90% of their money very easily. Uh, but for you, it's the difference between staying in business and going out of business because your profit margin may only be 10% or right. 15%. So that's just one example of, you know, how you really need good oversight of any vendor that you're doing business with, especially revenue cycle management. And unfortunately, you're right. Most of my colleagues don't have a good understanding of it, and it's unfortunate. And that's why revenue cycle management firms are a dime a dozen, and you probably get emailed several times a day. Same yeah. for media companies, but I digress. Yeah. It, uh, two, uh, <laughs> two other areas of significant challenge that I found when I was out on my own is, um, you know, administrative support in hiring, you know, are, are MSOs equipped to, to help in those areas? You mean like, um, human resources? Yeah. Uh, human resources person. Exactly. Um, yeah. So even it comes down to scheduling, you know? Absolutely. From, from HR, look, HR is a business in and of itself. So our, our, you know, our practice, uh, actually, uh, both vein 911 vein treatment centers and health performance specialists employs a PEO, a professional employer organization. And basically, uh, we outsource our HR to a company that does nothing but that all day long. They may have a billion dollars. In fact, ours does. RPO is a billion dollars in payroll. They're experts on hiring, firing, evaluating uh, new employees, background checks, um, all the legal uh, quagmires that, that exist in employing anybody in this country. It is sophisticated. There are compliance issues. You can get in trouble very quickly legally, and I won't get into all of that, uh, just in HR alone. And so uh, a PEO is something that, that certainly our, our practice uses and also our MSO uses and helps keep us out of, um, you know, HR compliance uh, problems. Now, I think the other thing you may be alluding to is certainly an, an, an MSO, like uh, I'll give you a real life example. You know, we're, we were down uh, an ultrasound technologist and then one of them broke their elbow and it's like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? We're going to have to reschedule all these patients, but uh, I can go out into my network and see if there's anyone uh, out in, in my vein care network that might have an ultrasound tech or t- uh, to spare for a week right. or two. So, you know, uh, there's power in numbers, you know, when we yeah. all kind of stick together and work together to some degree, we can accomplish amazing things. Look, doctors have so much more power than we realize. Uh, I am, even though I'm a policy wonk, it had been a long time. I've never been a doom and gloomer. Yeah. There's a lot of crappy stuff going on out there that, that we, uh, really have limited ability to change. However, with change comes opportunity and there 
is a lot of reason to be excited about medicine, practice of medicine, the independent practice of medicine. If you're getting the right information, there's tons of opportunities out there. And doctors, when we stick together, for God's sakes, we can get so much done. But unfortunately, it's hard to find three of us who will agree to anything. And you know what I'm yeah. talking about. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, that's, one of, that's kind of the gist I'm getting from the MSO is it's, you know, it's plugging you into a network, but allowing you to maintain independence as a physician so you can focus on patient care, right? Yes, yes, it is. Uh, or yes, it does. But, you know, there, there's MSOs. I mean, there's all sorts of flavors, you know. So, mm -hmm. you know, let's go into a little more specifics. You know, some, some MSOs, like I said, you're, you're selling your tax ID. You're giving right. up, you know, maybe half or 51% of your autonomy in exchange for, you know, some good stuff. The particular MSO that, uh, you know, I'm a managing director in is, is fairly unique. I don't think there's many of them out there. Uh, we don't share a tax ID. However, mm -hmm. we share best practices and best principles on, on operating a practice. Uh, we're more like a smorgasbord. You know, I can't make any of the folks in, in our MSO do anything that they don't want to do. They can buy who they want to buy from. It's more like a smorgasbord. I'm very proud of it. It's, uh, again, a, a different model. I don't own doctors. I don't want them to own me. I think physicians, by and large, highly value their independence. And our, uh, our network are all independent practices. But when we come together, there are economies of scale and, and ways we can save significantly on costs with, with all sorts of vendors and services. So uh, there are kind of two flavors of an MSO. And I think the one I just described and the one that, uh, you know, I'm a part of and founded is really a different, it's a different animal, honestly. Uh, most of these large single specialty groups and, and other MSOs, you're going to give up a, a fairly significant amount of autonomy in, in general. So okay. anyways, wanted to kind of, flesh that out a little bit. No, I mean, that's, I think that's a key point because, you know, when they do these burnout surveys, that's kind of one of the bottom lines is that lack of autonomy is, is one of the, uh, the major, you know, causes of burnout. And I, I think that's really at the end of the day, what physicians, they just want to be able to take care of patients and not feel like an employee, you know? Absolutely. That's, that's what we want. Now, uh, on, on the other hand, there are things, you know, we've never been exposed to or taught that, that we need to you know, spend a little more time uh, learning about, you know, right. and you, you know, we, as much as we may not like it, benchmarking ourselves, both from a patient satisfaction perspective and a clinical outcome perspective is, is kind of mandatory. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, peer pressure is pretty strong in medicine when we have, you know, a transparent and non-threatening view of, of how we're performing. And certainly, uh, you know, we do that in our MSO. We benchmark across practices and people, you know, people don't know how, you don't know how you're doing if you're not benchmarked, right? You don't know right. if you're high performing, low performing, in between. So get used to that. There's going to be, a, uh, that's yeah. already going on. Payers know what doctors are doing, how much they're spending on care. Oh, they have a very, very transparent view on literally every physician in America and provider in America. So don't, don't think it's a secret. They, they know if you're rendering high quality, low cost care or not, or at least their definition of it, Aaron. 
before we move on to talk a little bit more about the patient care perspective, I want to, uh, one last point up on from the physician perspective in terms of advantages. Can you speak a bit about uh, marketing and helping physicians uh, with marketing their practice? Well, sure. Look, marketing's another, I mean, they're, they're a penny a dozen, right? We're, we're solicited all day long. Do you want more leads? You know, can you use more leads? Uh, look, that's also a license to print money. When, when I asked one of my practices recently, I said, okay, you're spending $12,000 a month, but do you know what you're getting for that? Well, uh, scratch your head. Not, not really sure. Well, in our business, somewhere around $75 a lead is about, is about a good benchmark. So if you don't know the leads you're getting for the money you spend, then how do you know the value of, of, you know, your service? So, you know, there are, there are some media companies that are, that are way more transparent than others about, you know, how many leads they generate. But again, at the end of the day, uh, with any vendor, any relationship, you know, you have to, you know, trust, but verify, right, Aaron, you've got to hold accountable everybody you're doing business with. And these are concepts I've learned from CEOs. You know, you, you can't just assume everyone's going to take care of you, you know, and, right. and you know what, I got to digress for one minute. You sure. know why that's so difficult for doctors to understand? Because, you know, I joke around, there's, there's Dr. Pittman, the, the velvet hearted medical director, and then there's Dr. Pittman, the cold hearted, steely CEO. Here's why it's so difficult for us to understand, in my humble opinion, because when I go into an exam room, I don't need somebody to tell me to do my best job, right? No, no one listening to this podcast has to be told that. We're giving them the best. We're treating them like family and friends, and we're going to do, we don't have to be told that. However, in the business world, let me tell you, it's not like that. Don't assume everybody's, you know, in their business exam room with you, giving you the best possible, you know, business care. Unfortunately, yeah. it's fairly unusual. And that honestly, in my CEO groups took me years to really finally accept. So you must hold everyone you're doing business with accountable by, by looking in to what they're doing from time to time. Yeah, and that, that brings me to another question that I was going to get to a little bit later, but now's a good time is what are some disadvantages to joining an MSO and any kind of red flags you need to look out for with MSOs? Like we've been already talking about, when you're hiring any consultant or joining any MSO, be cautious. Obviously, yeah. there's fly-by-night fly MSOs, poorly operating MSOs, pricey MSOs, some that may not be honest or forthcoming. But the risks are the same when you engage any potential vendor or do business transaction with, with anybody. You've got to do yeah. your due diligence. Here's what I've been doing for years, okay? And I strongly recommend it. Always speak to two or three clients of an MSO or any vendor you're about to do business with. Whether it's okay. buying a machine, a pack system, a new CAT scan, don't go to the slick websites and the slick salespeople and all their uh, media collateral. Talk to three people who are using their product. And if they can't do that for you, and I got to tell you, I am shocked at the number of even billion dollar companies that are unwilling or unable to do that. Trust me, it's, yeah. it's, uh, there are billion dollar companies 
that basically build business after they get and and develop a product after they take your money, Aaron. Okay, because I've yeah. been I've been in the IT space a really long time. So I'll hammer it again. Uh, it's very sound policy before engaging any vendor to talk to two or three clients. If you always insist on that, it's difficult to go wrong. Yeah, that's very helpful. Any any kind of legal issues uh, or legal you know red flags with MSOs where. You know, you you mentioned kind of slick sales guys talking you into joining a network where, you know, they might be breaking the law. Can you talk on that at all? Well, I'm sure there's uh, MSOs that have done illegal stuff. Well, frankly, there's numerous hospital systems and payers that get penalized by the federal government for <laughs> millions of dollars, but it's a rounding error on their, you know, their, their revenue. But if I digress a little bit. But an MSO has to, should only help physicians with the business of medicine and never be involved in the direct practice of medicine. I certainly have a healthcare attorney, you know, draw up all these contracts and make sure you stay uh, away from violations of the federal anti-kickback statute, you know, with, with all these stark and referral issues. So you definitely need a health law attorney involved if you're standing up an MSO. Uh, and it might not be a bad idea to have have an attorney, uh, you know, look at any agreement you're you're involved in. Let me spend a minute on that because, you know, yeah. I'm not going to say doctors are cheap. Let's just say people are cheap in general. But I've worked right. I've worked with a lot of physicians and physician leaders, and and by golly, Aaron, they'll just say, "Gee, we don't want to get the attorney involved. They're too expensive. Why, you know, let's just go it alone. Let's just sign this thing." And I'm like wait a minute, wait a minute, folks. It's like you decry every patient that doesn't want to see you or second guesses your, you know, your assessment and plan, you know, in an exam room, you know, or doesn't want to pay you a, a $10 copay. And now you don't want to pay a, an attorney for their, their expertise and experience to keep you, you know, from losing your butt. It's crazy. Uh, physicians right. should yeah. not, should, they should be as close as they possibly can with their accountant number one and their attorney number two. Don't skimp on an attorney for God's sakes. It's like skimping on healthcare. And certainly right. everyone listening understands that, but so many doctors do. It's really shameful. They, and they get themselves yeah. in trouble. Yeah. And I mean, doctors also known to skimp on their own healthcare too. Well, right? let me, well, absolutely. <laughs> We're terrible. Right. But um, look, yeah. I gotta, I gotta say this. Okay. Because I've been working with doctors a long time. Right. So look, Aaron, every doctor's the smartest person in the room, guy or gal, right? right. Yeah, Aaron, right. you are the smartest guy in the room. All right. Besides <laughs> Bar you, right? none. No, no, no. <laughs> You're absolutely, I don't care who the doctor is. There's the smartest person in the room. Here's where they run afoul, all right? They think they can outsmart anybody about media, about an MSO, about legal stuff, you know, you name it. Hey, I'm smart enough. I can figure this out. Well, it's no different than when you left medical school after four years. You were smart. You did well and all that, but you really did, weren't entitled to do anything until you actually did your internship residency fellowship, right? That's where you learn the experience of actually doing it. So where I'm going with this is I'm definitely smarter than my COO. I'm definitely smarter than my CFO. Here's the problem, Aaron. 
I don't have their experience. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's where doctors screw up every single time. Okay. Respect other people's experience in the business world and in politics, just like you expect them, uh, a patient, when they come to see you, respect your experience. Doctors miss that. And, uh, I'm glad I was able to share that because it's yeah. true. <laughs> it's totally true. It's totally true. Le you know, like, like they say, leave your, you know, check your ego at the door, you know? Abso-freaking-lutely. Got, you know, yeah. you got to know your limitations. Pride in medicine yeah. kills and maims patients. We all know that. Yeah. You know, you got to know your limitations as a physician, but for God's sakes in the business realm, respect experience. Do your due diligence and then trust your business doctors. Yeah. Well, I wanted to uh, sidestep to the patient uh, advantages for a physician, an independent physician joining an MSO, so, sort of the considerations from the patient perspective, what advantages are there for a patient or, you know, you know a, a physician's patient, if they were to join an MSO, are they, do they open themselves up to a whole new network of potential care? You're, you're linked in with some other specialties. Can you, can you talk a little bit from the patient perspective? Well, well, sure. You know, I, we talk about patient centered care, Look, I believe anything that's good for the physician by definition is going to be patient-centered. That's my own opinion. So if the doctor's not having to worry about overhead and HR and compliance issues and going to make payroll the following month, then it stands to reason they're probably going to spend more time with their patients, deliver better care. Am I wrong? Okay, so this may sound self-serving, but I had this lovely lady uh, last week say, Dr. Pittman, your office runs so great, but I love my, this orthopedic surgeon I'm going to, but his office is a mess. Can I somehow bring you two together? You know, and I'm like, right. you know, the, I, I think the simple point is if a, if a practice is running well, then I think by definition, the patients are going to be uh, taken care of better. Uh, you know, right. patient satisfaction right. is important. Outcomes are important. So, you know, a doctor in MSO is going to be able to benchmark themselves uh, from an operational standpoint, a clinical outcome standpoint, a patient satisfaction standpoint. You know, I think it, it, uh, a rising tide will raise all ships, so to speak. But if you're just a ship out there, you know, it's, you know when you're going out on a Navy, do you want to be an armada or just a ship by itself? You know, you're going to be a little more powerful as an armada. For sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's multiple points of contact with every visit. And so if they're helping you find the A-team from your, your, your receptionist, to your MA, to your nurse, to, you know, your, your tech, um, and even, you know, the people in admin that are on the backside, they're helping with billing. I mean, all those things, they're spending a lot of times more time with those people than they are with the physician. And so I think that that's a huge help. And even with the EHR, you know, if you can get their medical records to them lickety split versus taking a week, you know, those kinds of things all go into the whole patient experience, you know? Absolutely. And where are most of the, you know, the one and two stars coming from? It's almost never the care. It's always right. the patient experience part, you know, billing, insurance, you know, uh, those kinds of stuff, those kind of more experiential things rather than, than the care. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. That's where most of that, that the bad stuff from patients comes from. So we, we hammer the patient experience personally 
in our office very hard. Chris, we covered a lot here and, and I, I, you really gave a great 101 on this topic. And so before we finish up, I just want to get your final thoughts and any suggestions on resources for, you know, young docs out there. You know, we, we kind of touched on it briefly in the beginning, but with interventional radiology, in addition to our other endovascular specialties, interventional cardiology and, and vascular surgery, there's a lot of guys coming out who want to do it on their own. And so I think this, this kind of information is really helpful. So I, I, I wanted you to throw out some resource suggestions as well, if you have any. Well, uh, resource suggestions, again, it's going to be, uh, you know, a bit challenging. I think you got to just do your due diligence. But uh, I think I, I'd really be remiss if I didn't go over a little bit where MSOs fit in, in our healthcare system, especially in terms of value-based care. MSOs play an increasing role in value-based care, population health management, you know, which requires sophisticated infrastructure and technology that MSOs can provide. And unfortunately, a lot of my colleagues don't understand the sea change that's going on in payment. You know, we're going from a fee-for-service fee uh, payment model to a fee-for-value payment model, and that uh, makes uh, independent practice and, and surviving and thriving in that realm uh, a lot more challenging. Just briefly, you know, health plans have been contracting with primary care providers and fee-for-value care plans uh, for years that require PCPs, you know, to effectively manage their patients' health care or the population of patients' health care. If the PCP manages the population of patients effectively, then the primary care physician receives a significant bonus payment. And this isn't theory for me. I've been a managing director in a fee-for-value model with multiple uh, large payers for many years now. Uh, but it's mostly primary care focused. So Value-based care is analogous to payer announcing a, a request for proposals, soliciting bids from a physician or a physician's group to provide efficient care to a population of patients. Value-based care is essentially gain sharing. It's like, hey, if I'm a plumber, they're going to say, all right, for $20,000, you're going to cover any plumbing problem on this block in any of these buildings for the next year. And mm -hmm. if it costs you a thousand bucks, then you keep nineteen thousand. If it costs you forty thousand, then you just lost twenty thousand bucks on the twenty thousand I paid you. That's gain sharing. So many, many primary care physicians are eligible for pr payer premium dollars through claims adjustment, utilization management, case management, etc. And MSOs are important partners in the value-based payment arena. So this is really important for you know, folks that aren't you know, towards the end of their career, because this is coming like a freight train. So MSOs are playing an increasing role in value-based payment and population health management as the fee-for-value payment model expands to include specialty care, okay, endovascular and vascular care. So value-based care has many iterations. It's really been around for decades. Medicare Advantage plans exploding in the country are predicted to eclipse Medicare enrollment in just four short years. By 2025, there will be less Medicare people on Medicare than Medicare Advantage plans. Obamacare was essentially a government-sponsored fee-for-value payment system that's been gaining traction for 11 years in the country and includes private payers and government payers. So because MSOs provide visibility into quality metrics, physician performance, patient health data, they prepare practices to make the inevitable transition to population-based or value-based care. 
And make no mistake, that's where it's headed for specialty-based care. So a primary care that's involved, and most of them are, in value-based contracts, they're not going to refer to a specialist that costs too much. They're, mm-hmm. They are go- because it's money out of their back pocket. It's mo- money out of the primary care's back pocket. Wow. They are going to identify the specialist or the vascular physician and practices that do good medicine at a reasonable cost. Hear what I'm saying? Yeah. So that, you know, they're two different universes. Fee for service is different from fee for value. It's going to be very difficult to navigate that as a lone ranger, a single physician, honestly. Right. So to wrap up, when evaluating any MSO, always speak with two or three clients for, of an MSO or any vendor, okay, before you pull the trigger on any contract, MSO or otherwise. I'd strongly recommend this before engaging any vendor. Jack of all trades, master of none comes to mind. You know, I'd suggest sticking to a single specialty MSO that offers close collaboration, meaningful physician leadership and guidance. The best run healthcare systems out there have physicians either at the helm or highly respected as part of their management teams. Mayo. Cleveland Clinic, ChenMed, Kaiser Permanente. So find an outfit that has some physician leadership, if not, you know, significant physician leadership. Uh, There's going to be increasing complexity in the business of healthcare going forward, and MSOs are going to continue to be a strategic option for most physicians. Okay. And we're going to talk about, uh, so HBS is, is your MSO, right? Yeah, it's our MSO. And, you know, it was really born out, you know, I think we stood it up March 2018. And it was born out of, look, there's a lot of great doctors out there rendering great venous and lymphatic care that were ha- having trouble staying in business. And it was recommended to me, you know, by my contract COO at the time, hey, why don't we stand something like this up? I said, great, let's do it. So... We're the largest independent network of vein practices in the USA. We're quickly growing. Uh, you know, we supply actionable data and insight to, you know, venous physicians. It results in positive changes in their practices, enables them to make the right business and clinical decisions. When physicians can transparently understand their business data, then they can deliver higher quality and more efficient care. And make no mistake, Aaron, the future of vein, future medicine is volume, efficiency, outcomes. Hopefully not in that order. (laughs) Right. Volume, efficiency, outcomes. If you can't, you know, there's going to be a role for boutique practices. Absolutely. But by and large, you better be seeing volume, doing it efficiently and having good outcomes. So our network physicians are benchmarked uh, with, uh, with regard to patient satisfaction. You know, as I mentioned in the ever-expanding value-based payment arena, uh, unnecessary and expensive vascular specialty cares is a cost center for payers and primary care physician partners. And so primary cares in the future are going to be incented to refer to those vascular specialists who understand their costs, deliver superior care at a reasonable cost and with high patient satisfaction. HPS is 100% committed to moving toward these value-based payment models to compete on cost quality efficiency I believe that that's the pathway for independent private practices to compete. Let me digress and say I'm not a cheerleader for value-based medicine. Uh, remember, I'm, I'm the messenger. Yeah. Um, but I, I know better than to fight against it. 
that's the cards we've been dealt. You better be ready to play in that playing field. Collaborating with payers, other providers, aligns incentives to keep total costs down and improves outcomes. You know, I'm a big technology guy. You know, HPS is tested, vetted, rolling out, you know, a robust app-based solution for online. Everything's paperless for what we do. Online scheduling, remote patient clinical and administrative onboarding virtual telemedicine visits, electronic payment. Pa people want this a seamless delivery of their care right. with high touch. And I'll, I'll uh, you know, as an IT expert, I'll, I'll finish off with this. I never put a computer between me and a patient. Uh, the delivery of medicine is always going to be a personal, empathetic, you know, one-on-one -on -one thing. I don't care what machine and computers come along. We are social beings. We always will be. And nothing's proved that better than COVID. Yeah. And uh, and and so there's there's a role for technology, but at the end of the day, it's one on one uh, with that patient, you know, with with empathy and and sincerity. Yeah. And uh, sorry, you may have said this before. What does what does HPS stand for? Health Performance Specialists. Oh, okay, excellent. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you that the the MSO. I mean, joining a specialty specific MSO makes a lot of sense, right? Because they know what your needs are from head to toe versus a multi-specialty. Uh, while you might think the advantage would be, you know, referrals, what works well for internal medicine doc may or may, you know, most likely will not work well for, for you as an endovascular specialist, you know? Yes. And if you permit me, you know, I can speak to multi-specialty clinics, you know, they enjoy the uh, benefit of, you know, literally self-referral within their practices. And if right. you think uh, just, just a little bit more deeply about it and where we're going with value-based medicine, uh, that model alone is not going to uh, necessarily guarantee uh, survival or thriving. You've got to focus mm -hmm. on v on volume, efficiency, outcomes, and not churning. Yeah, you follow me. Oh, yeah. So, sure. um, I believe, and I think it's being borne out that medicine will become more fragmented. Mm -hmm. You know, so there'll be gallbladder hospitals, just like there's joint hospitals. Right. I exaggerate and make a point. There's going to be venous and lymphatic medicine centers because if you can be the best at what you do and leverage that and scale that, then, then why wouldn't patients and payers gravitate towards that? Right. You know, right. a jack of all trades, master of none, let's face yeah. it. You know, yeah. there's no, there is no uh, substitute for experience in medicine. Yeah, we, we're seeing, I mean, it's, think about how rare it is to find a general radiologist these days that does you know, about everything. It's, it's <laughs> difficult. And I believe that's how you uh, carve a pathway to success in the future is find a niche and become among the best in the world at it. And yeah. the world's your oyster. So are yeah. the patients. Well, I think that's a great way to end it, Chris. Thank you so much for coming <laughs> on. Always a pleasure. And I uh, hope we'll, we'll get you on uh, for another topic, maybe EMRs, uh, you know. That'd be I <laughs> got plenty to talk, say about those. Uh, I know you do. Important stuff in my opinion. Yeah. But thanks, thanks. Always a fun time. Thanks, Aaron. All right, thanks, Chris. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore backtable on Instagram, Twitter, 
or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.